You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. We're going to be continuing uh, our sermon series this morning through 1 Peter and 2 Peter, but we're in 1 Peter right now, and um, it's an appropriate passage for Easter, so I'm really excited about going through it this morning. We're not going to reinvent the wheel, we're just going to reaffirm uh, what we believe and what we know and, and what our hope is. And so I think it's going to be good. So if you want to turn with me to First Peter 3, we're going to be at verse 18 to tw- and then reading to verse 22. First Peter 3, 18 to 22. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that's alive and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, Lord, and, and that it's just cutting to the bone and marrow, Lord God. It's affecting us. It's changing us. It's molding us. It's drawing us closer to you, Lord God, and it's revealing um, who you are, Lord God, and who we are in light of who you are, Lord. And um, I just thank you so much that we could come here uh, today of all days to celebrate Jesus, your resurrection, that you conquered the grave, Lord God. And as we discuss what that means and what that means for us, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified, first of all, Lord God, but that we would also be changed and, and encouraged and lifted up. Um, yeah, we just glorify your name. Amen. All right. Blair had you practice a little bit earlier, but he is risen. That was actually really good. Well done. Let's do it again. He is risen. Amen. So in light of that, humor me here. What if he wasn't? What if he, what if he didn't rise from the grave? Basically, then all of this happening right now would be a waste, right? A waste of our energy and our finances and our skills. Everything we've done here at the gate, everything we've done in our, in our Christian lives would be worthless, right? And, and what we could argue, well, maybe following Jesus' teaching might have made our quality of life seem a bit better and seem more purposeful and and helpful and loving. Sure, but in the end, right, it'd it'd be pointless. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, the Apostle Paul writes that if Jesus is still dead, that if he died on the cross and, and he died and he's still buried in the grave, if there was no resurrection, then that simply means we have no hope beyond this life. And if so, he writes of Christians we are of all people most to be pitied. Because if Jesus remained in the tomb, there'd be no living hope. 
what we'd have is a dead hope, which is basically no hope at all, right? It's pretend, or at best, it's wishful thinking. And if that's the case, we probably have more hope in a bunny laying chocolate eggs in inconspicuous places in our backyard for us to find, right? We'd have more hope in that without the resurrection. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then he accomplished nothing. If he didn't rise from the grave, it means he's not the Son of God. If he didn't rise from the grave, it means he wasn't the Messiah. The cross would be meaningless. We'd have no purpose beyond this life, or or arguably very little purpose in this life. We'd have no Savior. We'd have no salvation. We'd have no access to the presence of God. We'd have no Holy Spirit. We'd have no reason. We'd, We'd definitely have no vindication, purpose, or hopeful explanation for our life or for our suffering in this life as Christians. Without the resurrection, we're still dead in our sins. Timothy Keller writes, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Everything Jesus said... Everything Jesus did rises and falls on the resurrection. Our hope rises and falls on the resurrection. And that's why the underlying current and foundation of pretty much every point and encouragement of hope made in the letter of 1 Peter is predicated on the Apostle Peter's belief as well as his own personal witness and testimony that Jesus is not a dead guy. Acts 10.40, it says, But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. And Acts 2.32, Peter himself exclaims, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter saw the resurrected Christ and the wounds in his hands with his own eyes. He saw it. If he didn't, he would have died a fisherman, wishing he could get back those three years of his life that he was following some weird dude that said he was God. Like, why did I do that? That's what his life would be. But that's not the way it went down. Jesus Christ, by the will of God the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit, he conquered the grave. He walked out of that tomb. No longer as a meek and suffering servant either, but victoriously, full of glory as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Which means that by the grace of God, we're not alone. We are not hopeless. And yet we're even more than hopeful even. We have a living hope. A living hope because Jesus is alive. He is risen. And a living hope means that it's not only something that we get to look forward to when when Jesus returns or when we get to heaven or whatever, but that it's also something that we can know, at least in part, even now. It's a hope that's alive and active in our lives today. And that's what I believe Peter's calling us to to grab a hold of here, to lean on this living hope in order to persevere in our lives as we live for him. In the context of this passage, he's talking to the readers about their suffering and everything like that. But this applies to more than just suffering, I think. It's, it's, It's our whole lives to lean on this hope, this living hope that we have, and to persevere and to and to go with boldness in living for Jesus. But in order to understand this better, I think, and, and also because it's Easter Sunday, uh, I want to focus mainly this morning on, on why we have this living hope, on what Jesus accomplished in his death and, and in his resurrection. 
And then we'll, we'll, get back, we'll relate that back to how it affects us and encourages us in our mandate to boldly live and glorify him. So, like I said, we're not going to reinvent the wheel. We're going to reaffirm what we believe as Christians and be reminded of that because I think we need to be reminded of this daily, of what Jesus did for us and, and who we are because of it. And so we're going to go through that starting with verse 18 which is actually packed full of information. Verse 18 is basically the whole Easter weekend in one verse. So we're going to go through that. Verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So Peter's bringing up Jesus' suffering. He says, We can suffer. Because Jesus suffered. So he's, he's bringing that up for us to be ready to follow as an example. But immediately, he also sets Christ's suffering apart as being completely unique and necessary. What sets it apart right away, first of all, is that while our, our suffering doesn't save us from our sins, right? our suffering without Christ is a result of sins, our suffering doesn't save us from sins. Jesus' suffering, however, did save us from sin. And not just our sins only, but as Peter says, once for all, which means for all time, past, present, future, all sins, forgiven. And I'm sure many of us have heard pastors or youth pastors in, in, in their attempt to, to bring conviction and, and tug at our heartstrings. I'm, probably, I'm, I'm sure you've probably heard them say something like, you know, just full of emotion, you know, each and every time we sin. We hammer another nail into the hand of Jesus. How many of you have heard that before? Yeah? Yeah? And while I understand this, I've heard it so many times, and while I understand the sentiment, because yes, our sin did put him on the cross, and if we were there the day Jesus was taken to Golgotha and hung on the cross, each one of us would have either been just like the disciples abandoning and running away from Jesus, or more likely among the crowd calling for his execution. But truthfully, each time we sin, we don't actually put Jesus back on the cross. We don't actually hammer another nail into his hand because, as Peter says, he suffered once, once for sins. Which means he doesn't need to get back up on the cross again and again and again every time we sin. That would really suck for Jesus if he had to keep doing that, right? He'd be on there every second. And it defeats the whole purpose. Because God's, God's people, the Hebrews in the Old Testament, they basically had to do that, right? Weekly, monthly, yearly, they had to make repeated atonements, giving their first fruits of the harvest and, and sacrificing their most unblemished animals at the temple to pay the price for their different types of, of sins, including, of course, the sacrificial lamb during the Passover feast every year, which was sacrificed by the high priest at the altar in order to temporarily cover all their sins for that year. So yes, again and again, every time they disobeyed the law of God, they had to atone every time. But it was never enough, never sufficient for all time, and, never, and not sufficient enough to reconcile man with God. Only the high priest could enter the presence of God, right? But Jesus, the perfect and innocent Lamb of God, proclaimed right before he died on the cross. It is finished. 
It is finished. And that's the truth. In Christ, there's no more atoning, no more bloodshed is needed anymore for sin. It is finished. Hebrews 9, 25, 26 says, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he, Jesus, would have, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So one time, one death was sufficient in redeeming the world. But again, not just, not just anyone's death, right? Not just anyone could have gotten up on the cross that day and died. There have been many martyrs for the faith. There have been many martyrs for other faiths, but none of them couldn't. And none of them did pay the penalty for all sin, much less their own. It had to have been Jesus. And Peter assumes, I guess, that we'd want to know why. Because in the next part of the verse, he immediately tells us when it says the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous. And very simply, this means that Jesus, who is righteous, took the punishment of our sin on the cross as our substitute in our place. And then in exchange, we get his righteousness, which means our right standing with God, a clean slate with God. So why couldn't it just be anybody? Why did it have to be Jesus? Well, first, because a sinner can't atone for the sins of man. When a sinner dies, no matter how well-meaning they are, that's just the result and consequence of sin. Wages of sin is death. For example, if I was on death row for murder, uh, I hope that never happens, um, but if I was on death row for murder, right, and another guy, he's on death row for murder as well, and we're both set to be executed that day, I'm supposed to be executed first, and uh, I'm on my way there, and then he volunteers to take my place. He's like, I'll, I'll die in your place. He'd just be getting what he deserved, right? And then it would be pointless because I would still be guilty and on death row, right? So only someone who isn't guilty can truly take our place. Only a righteous person who doesn't deserve punishment can be our substitute. And only Jesus fits that description. Nobody else in the history of all mankind is sinless, guiltless, and perfectly obedient to God. Only Jesus, the Son of God, was. And, and, and God, because of his great love for us, sent him for that purpose, to be born in the flesh in order to take our sin upon himself. What Jesus actually deserved as the Son of God was glory. Eternal glory. He didn't have to go to the cross. He's the only one who could say, I don't deserve the cross. But yet he did. He willingly set his equality with God aside and he humbly gave himself up for our redemption. He substituted himself, righteous for the unrighteous, just for the unjust. This is incredible grace, amazing grace, 
2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For our sake, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is also why only Jesus can make the claim that so many in our Western society these days seems to find so offensive, right? When Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. Because only he was able to make the way. Only by his blood. But that's only half the point. We need to understand as well that only he had to. Because of him, no one else has to. No one else needs to make a way anymore. The way is there. For example, I'm not going to build another door in my office upstairs there. Right? Because there's already a door. Right? Someone more capable than me installed that door, put that door there. Why would I waste all my energy in building another door when there's already a way into my office? In the same vein, Jesus already made a way. My question is, you know, why, and even to myself, why why are we as humans so hung up on trying to make different ways or, or agreeing that there could be other ways or being offended that there's only one way or reverting back to being religious and trying to make a way for ourselves and earn it ourselves? Especially when anything we try will always just fall short of the holiness of God. The truth is that without Jesus, without the cross, there wouldn't be a way at all. And so for those of us that understand that we rejoice, we rejoice that Jesus has made a way. And here's the next question. Jesus died in our place, but why did he do it? What's the end game? Where does the way lead? Ultimately, ultimately, as it says in the next verse, Jesus died for our sins, righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. So that he might bring us to God. God desires to know us. God desires to be with us. But because he's just, he can't just ignore the sin that's been keeping us from him. That's been setting us apart from him. But now through Jesus' righteousness, because he took that sin upon himself, we can confidently and boldly enter into the presence of God. We can know God through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 18 to 19 says, For through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Because of Jesus, our acceptance and relationship with God is no longer based on our works, is no longer based on our performance or what we do, right? But it's based solely on his free gift of grace. And I want to mention that so far, all all this is pretty much what we covered at our Good Friday service. If you were there, you'd be like, we already talked about this. Like I said, we need to be reminded of it, and it's amazing to be reminded of it. But this is what we covered at our Good Friday service. This is what Jesus did in his death at the cross, right? He took our place, suffered for our sins, satisfied the wrath of God. But again, all of it would be empty and meaningless and incomplete and for nothing 
if it wasn't for today. If it wasn't for today, if it wasn't for Easter, the third day, everything Jesus said and did in his life and everything Jesus died for at the cross is both culminated and proven at the resurrection. As it says at the end of verse 18, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. It's only through the resurrection that his suffering was vindicated. It was only through resurrection life that he conquered death. And that's our hope. That's our living hope. That's why we rejoice at Easter. Because at Easter we remember that Jesus won. At Easter we we remember that Jesus truly is the Christ. And that all that he needed to, to accomplish at the cross was accomplished once for all. He won the victory. In his resurrection, he put death to death. And even more than that, as verse 22 states, he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Right? Jesus is risen. Jesus won. He's the reigning king of kings and lord of lords. He's alive. So what does that mean for us? Three very simple points. First of all, it means that we no longer have to carry the burden and guilt of our sin. Jesus took it all upon himself, right? Jesus took it all upon himself once for all. Every sin, every doubt, every fear, every moment of guilt and shame, every burden Jesus carried at the cross. All we have to do is repent and believe in his name. And we're saved. Our sins are forgiven. Our unrighteousness exchanged for his righteous righteousness. Set free from our guilt and shame. Covered in his mercy and grace. He already paid the price. We just have to receive it. Romans 10, 9. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. So there's, if there are any of you this morning that don't know Jesus and don't know that freedom, receive it this morning. Believe in his name and receive that freedom. And for, for us Christians, if we're carrying, if we're holding on to our sin, if we're holding on to our burdens and guilt, and we're like, oh, we deserve, we deserve this shame, we deserve this guilt. No, Jesus took that upon himself. Give that to him this morning. Lay that at the cross. He carried that burden for us. Second, what this means for us, his resurrection means that we're also set free from the grip and punishment of death. In the passage, Peter seems to be randomly bringing up the days of Noah in this passage. And to be honest, his wording here has perplexed many theologians. I read three, three different commentaries, and they all said different things. So um, Martin Luther actually said it was the most complicated passage in the New Testament. So there's that. But I think... I was wondering a word for it, but I think that what he's getting at here is that the unrighteous in that day, in the days of Noah, influenced by demonic influence, which, is, which he now says Jesus has authority over, right? But the unrighteous in that day refused to obey and turn to God. 
even though God was patient with them as the ark was being built, they refused to turn to God. And so they eventually found themselves facing God's judgment for their sin, which is death in the flood. But even then, God rescued eight people, including Noah. There's Noah and his family, right? He rescued them because he mercifully counted them as righteous. But now, in Christ, because of Christ's death and resurrection, we don't have to face the same fate of the unrighteous anymore. Because Jesus took that judgment. We're no longer subject to death for our sin because through Christ, we now have eternal life. And then Peter writes in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in baptism, what happens? We get, we get dunked under the water and then we get brought back out. Right? That signifies our death to sin and then being raised up and born again in Christ, being made new. So before we misinterpret here, a lot of people misinterpret this passage. It's not the act of baptism itself that saves us. Right? All that actually would do is just wash the dirt from our body, as Peter says. Right? But what actually does save us and make us eternally alive is what baptism publicly signifies. It's our appeal as we're being baptized, our appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're saved from sin and death through Jesus Christ. John eleven twenty five to 26, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Or as Craig D. Lounsborough writes, Easter is a time when God turned the inevitability of death into the invincibility of life. Which brings us to you know, the final point of what this means for us. And I think the ultimate point here um, for his readers and, and why, he, why Peter brought up Jesus' death and resurrection here in the first place, which is that our current suffering... Our current suffering as Christians is no longer pointless or a punishment for our sin. Timothy Keller again writes, The cross tells you what the reason for your suffering isn't. It can't be that God doesn't love you, that he has no plan for you. And I think we often, when it, when it comes to suffering or even just, just boldly living our Christian lives and, and facing trials because of it, right? I, I think we often try to theologically explain these things uh, by thinking, you know, well, maybe it's because we deserve it. I mean, punished for, for some sin or, or because God doesn't love us or, or because God has abandoned us and, and we're without hope. But for Christians, that simply cannot be the case anymore, especially because it was through God's love, his desire to be with us, that Jesus suffered for our sins once for all. So we don't have to ever again. In other words, for Christians, then our trials and our hardships that we go through are never caused by God abandoning us or caused by God punishing us. Never. If that's your, your theology, it's wrong. Jesus took our punishment for our sin. If we're suffering, it's not punishment. 
For Christian suffering is not loss, it's not pointless, it's not punishment, it's not abandonment. But rather, we can see that since it was through suffering that Jesus received victory and vindication, that therefore we can know and be confident that as Christians, our suffering for his name will also now bring vindication for us. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Because of the resurrection, the reason that we face trials as Christians has been turned upside down. It's no longer because of sin, because of our sin, but because of our glory and our witness for Christ, which means there's glorious purpose and blessing in the midst of it. And the joy that Jesus is alive and with us and strengthening us through it. And that by persevering in faith, we actually battle and conquer and proclaim our victory and our hope in Christ over the enemy and to the world. And just like in baptism, it's a reminder that it's in death that we gain life. That it's the unrighteous who drown in the water of suffering, but it's the righteous covered by the blood and grace of the resurrected Christ who come out of it alive and victorious. So because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can cry out fearlessly and boldly in the midst of our trials and, and even in our dying breath from 1 Corinthians 15, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we cry out in our lives. That's what we can cry out in our trials. That's what we can cry out on our deathbeds. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So knowing that Jesus is alive, knowing that he has authority over everything and that we've been made alive through him, this should, this should change our worldview. This should change our perspective on everything, not just suffering, but everything. We have a living hope and an eternal joy. We have the spirit alive and at work in us. We have his love and grace to cover us and uphold us and invite us into the presence of God, into the family of God. We have resurrection. We have hope and resurrection life. And as long as Jesus lives, our hope lives, which means it lives forever, which means no tragedy, no trials, no, no persecution, no amount of riches or, or good works, not even death can ever take that hope away or even replace it. But in the same vein, the way that we live now should be in response to it. Right? Do we live in view of that hope? You know, when we face trials, are we, are we crushed and depressed because of them? Or, or do we persevere through them with strength because, because we have that hope? When the disciples saw Jesus had emerged from the tomb, he changed their lives. One moment they were depressed, hopeless fishermen. You know, they'd gone back to their lives. Wondering where Jesus was, feeling ashamed. But then all of a sudden, after seeing Jesus alive, they were boldly proclaiming and courageously suffering if needed and even dying 
to proclaim the reality and hope of the resurrected Christ. So if our hope rests in the living Christ, then that should translate into every facet of the way we live our lives as well. And the way we persevere through trials with strength and joy, and the way we love and forgive others with grace and compassion, and the way we give generously and give hope to others, and the way we spend our time, and the way we face death, and the way we fearlessly proclaim Christ, and the way we worship everything. We walk and live in hope. We live in a victory that's already been won, which means we can't lose. If we know we can't lose, we we shouldn't be afraid of anything. We should be boldly moving forward. Our hope is alive because Jesus is alive. We live because he lives. And on that note, let's end with this verse from the beginning of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's pray. Lord God, I just want to echo that verse and praise your name, Lord, and glorify your name with just humble thankfulness, Lord, that you've caused us to be born again to a living hope. Lord, when we were walking in our sin, when we were walking in our hopelessness, Lord, you loved us with such great love, with such faithful love, that you sent your one and only begotten Son to take our place at the cross, to die our death, and to not only free us from our sin, but to free us from death itself. Lord, we thank you so much for the freedom that you've given us in Christ, for the life that you've given us in Christ. Lord God, I pray that even as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, that he is alive. Lord, that we would know that he, that he is truly alive and working in our hearts even now, Lord God, and that that would translate into lives lived for him. That our lives would bring glory to your name. And that as we walk into victory, Lord God, that we would walk with boldness, proclaiming your name, proclaiming your glory to the world, Lord, that we would show the world this living hope that you've given us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.